This afternoon, uh, being the first Sunday of a month, we're continuing in our first Sunday Psalm series, uh, continuing on with part two of the 37th Psalm, one of these uh, longer Psalms. We mentioned that uh, when we started this, uh, doing a monthly Psalm, that uh, that means that I've committed myself to at least 150 months um, of being with you all. So, but that's also going to mean more because we've already done multiple Sundays for certain Psalms, and who knows what happens when we get to Psalm 119. But let's hear from the 37th Psalm again, and just uh, give ear uh, to God's holy word. Of David, fret not yourselves because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. But the evildoers, for the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In in the days of famine they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. 
and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall shall altogether be destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Let us pray. Father, blessed be your name. You are the Lord our God who has given us your holy, righteous word. As we come before you today to study your word, we ask that your word would sink deeply within our hearts that you might plant it, plant it deeply, that we might grow thereby, that our faith might be increased and strengthened. We ask, Father, that you would reveal to each of us afresh our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our sufficiency in the beginning of life, through life, and at the end of life. And we ask, Father, that you'd rest upon this preacher. Would you chain him to the text of your word, that I might freely declare your truth and do so with clarity, with accuracy, and with understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been walking uh, through the Psalter, the last several Psalms, we've seen cries of lament and hope in light of suffering and persecution at the hands of wicked men. In fact, the prayers of lament are the most common prayer in the Psalter. A cry of lament is simply crying, saying, this is bad and I need help. That's what lament is. It's expressing despondency. It's it's expressing that which is difficult and that which is hard. It's expressing suffering and despair. But yet, mixed, intermingled with each of those psalms is a sense of hope. Hope that God is the refuge and strength of his people. And thus, always in those psalms, is the psalmist crying to the Lord, his God. Thus gives us the place for which we should do. And we've also seen in these psalms how, the, how while they testify of the particular psalmist so far up to this time, mostly David, they testify of his own particular circumstance in light of reading the scripture as a whole from the standpoint, we've also seen that these point beyond David and they point to Christ Jesus. And they point us to Christ and lead us to him who is the greater David and who is the greater one who is the truly righteous one in whom we have our refuge. And as we said last time when we looked at the 37th Psalm, we have a psalm that reads a lot like a chapter out of the Proverbs. We just finished reading the Proverbs here after having spent uh, 31 Sundays reading through the Proverbs. And we can see there's a lot of different ways that the Proverbs are, are structured. Uh, there's, there's different types of statements that what we call are parallel to each other. Sometimes they reinforce one another. Sometimes they're the opposite of each other. But either way, they kind of, kind of goes from topic to topic to topic and then back to another topic and so forth and so on. And this particular psalm reads a lot like that. reads a lot like a chapter out of the Proverbs. 
But we see in here there's a constant theme all the way through. We looked at last time in the first nine verses of the psalm, this idea of fret not. Don't fret. Don't worry. Don't be sitting, sitting around um, wringing our hands over what we see happening all around us. Which, it's, as we've said, is really nothing new. This has always been happening in human history in different, different ways and to different extents. <coughs> Um, and while appearances suggest that the wicked are on top, the godly should wait. As Tremper Longman says, since the success of the wicked will not last and reward will eventually come to those who put their trust in God. In God. And at the central, a central idea to this psalm, as we've seen, as we're going to see today again, is this idea of the land. Israel was in a unique covenant that no other nation, past, present, or future, have or ever will have. But there is still relevance to us, for Israel was a type of the church. And we look around the world and we can see uh, the case. We can see the case that there is all sorts of stuff that happens in the world. And we can see that in life it often appears that the wicked or those we would call evil have the upper hand. But it's one thing we've seen as we uh, look throughout look through the Psalms. And look, look at them Christologically, that when it comes to comparison with those whom we call wicked, we really don't have a leg to stand on ourselves. Because we ourselves are equally condemned before God in and of ourselves. And we need one who is truly not wicked, one who is truly righteous on our behalf. The text opens up with, and again we saw that it opens up with this idea, fret not because of evildoers. And we saw the climax in verse 7. And in verse 8. And now we're going to be looking today at verses 10 through 26. Looking where he shifts gears now to a comparison and more of a contrast between the righteous versus the wicked. Again, this is all built on the main idea of being still before the Lord. Instead of fretting, instead of being anxious, he says to put off the fret, to put off the anxious, to put off the anger and the temptation to do evil, to return evil for evil, and to be still before the Lord. Because God will always do right according to his purposes, and God will indeed judge righteously. It just sometimes we get impatient. In verses 10 and 11 now, we open up with what is the opening contrast between uh, the righteous and the wicked. In verse 10, we see, in just a little while, <coughs> the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. We have this language of saying that we have this fixture of those who do evil, who seem to do well, even later in the psalm. It speaks of the one who... Uh, spread himself self out like a green laurel tree and was ever present, but now he's no more. Or it speaks of later. In fact, what will be uh, we'll see it today. Uh, <clears throat> the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. They like smoke. They vanish away. One of the things I enjoy living, I enjoy about living here, is the abundance of the wildflowers. Now, in Texas, we had plenty of wildflowers, too, but not anywhere near the diversity. 
I mean, we had about three weeks of blue bonnets and then some other types of flowers. But here we have season after season after season after season of wildflowers. In Texas, the blue bonnets come and then some others come and then it gets too hot and they all die. But here we have all these wildflowers, all beautiful, but they don't last long. They don't last long. They go away. Only to yield to kind of what we see now, brown lawns. And they pass away. But yet again, spring will come and they shall, and should, they shall be there. And that's something that is being uh, pointed out here. In just a little while, they will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. There is coming a day in which there shall be no, be no more evil or unrighteousness in the world. There is coming that day. But it is not something that you and I will create. It is not something that you and I will say, if we can just do the right things and get all the right structures in place, we'll get rid of all the evil in the world. It comes at the judgment when Christ returns. But that does not, but even though evil continues in this age, does not mean God is not present. As we've seen in Matthew 13, with the parable of the wheats and the tares. That though God's rule is present in his people, there the tares still exist and it won't and it, and it will, will be that way until that day in which all are gathered. And so, but the wicked shall come to an end. But in verse eleven, we have a contrast, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Where the wicked will be no more, the it is who is it that's going to inherit the land but the meek? I might first of all ask, does that language sound familiar at all? The meek shall inherit the land. We turn our attention to Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. And we hear Jesus in what we call the Beatitudes say this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Before we go on to that, we ask, what does meek mean? What does the idea of meekness mean? At the basic idea is that of someone who is humble. Have you ever seen the guy who simply does his job and you really don't notice him much, but he always gets the job done and he's a reliable person and just but doesn't really doesn't isn't always boisterous and he's not always the guy who says, Hey everyone, look at me. He just kind of does, he's just there, but he's always doing what he's supposed to do. That's what a meek person is. Another way is quiet. Humble. Humility. After all, is not entering into the gospel of Jesus Christ something that involves humility and acknowledging that we, have some, we need someone else to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It is one who is not all about themselves. Uh, back to the Beatitudes. We often uh, read those sometimes as <clears throat> as ways, and we're going to talk about this more in just a little bit. But we oftentimes read those in terms of, oh, these are things that I need to do and be in order to get this blessing. When, we're, when what we see is we see that, uh, we'll see, talk about this in a moment, how Christ is announcing that a certain day has come. But in the immediate context, it says the meek will inherit the land. In that immediate context, it's the land of promise that would have been promised to 
Abraham and had been promised to Moses in the context of a couple of covenants which were built around for the purpose of life in the land, do this and live. They were not by their nature gracious covenants. They were earthly temporal covenants that testified of a greater reality. Testified uh, and when Abraham was given the covenant of circumcision was also given a promise that went back to the garden that there would be through his lineage a seed through whom all the peoples of the earth should be blessed. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And what those covenants said is that do this and live, but you can't do this and live. You need someone else to do that so you can live. And that land is a type of an even greater land, as we've seen in the book of Hebrews. Abraham, while he was going to that patch of land, was not looking for a patch of land. He was looking for a heavenly city, as we saw in the book of Hebrews. And we have that in Christ, who has met all the terms for us to possess it. As we mentioned, just mentioned a moment ago, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 is, is most likely calling attention to this psalm and other ones that say that language. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Uh, there's other beatitudes that uh, find their rooting in, he, in the Hebrew scriptures. One of the other uh, beatitudes is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus stands before a synagogue and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And after saying that, said, this day, in, on this day, this, this has been fulfilled. But the spirit, of the, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. That's quoting from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, which also said, which, which, but he quotes only part of it. If you read the rest of it, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, <coughs> because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, Proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. That's announcing a certain day, announcing a day of salvation. So when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, he said, that day you've been looking for, guess what? It's here. And so this psalm is even looking forward to that day. We often read those Beatitudes as qualifications for entering into eternal life or signs of those who have eternal life. We should read them as this way. These are marks of the truly righteous one. There is only one who is truly poor in spirit, who properly mourned, who is properly pure in heart, who is properly meek. And his name is Jesus the Christ. And in these Beatitudes... He's making an announcement that the day of salvation has come in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, even then, when he says this, the meek shall inherit the land, he's pointing forward to someone who's even greater. David, in this psalm, is pointing forward to someone who's even greater. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And all who are in him are righteous. All in him desire to grow in his likeness. So as we read the following sections of this psalm, 
Well, there are specific instances, as we've seen in the Psalms, where the psalmist is regarding himself as, as blameless in regards to specific accusations with regards to doing specific righteous acts and those who did specific wicked acts. We have a contrast between what is truly righteous and the wickedness of humanity. We have a contrast going on. And it shows a need that each and every human being has for the righteousness of that righteous one. We move on to verses 12 through 15. And we can see now the curse of wickedness. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. (coughs) We see, first of all, that wickedness is devastating to all. It's devastating to the it's devastating to those who are at the uh, to those who are in the targets in the crosshairs of the wicked. They plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at him. That is looking for reasons to destroy the righteous and looking at at the righteous one and and express the language of gnashing teeth. You've probably done it before. I come, come fall, college football season, I'll get to watch my Texas Aggies, and I'll spend a lot of time gnashing my teeth. Going, Arr. that's anger. And that's a work of the devil. They look at the righteous and look at righteous with derision, seeking destruction. Would regard them, as we'll see in a moment, as lesser status uh, than themselves. Remembering Christ is the truly righteous one. And did not the nations rage and plot against our Lord Jesus Christ? The truly righteous one. Who because of that plot took upon himself our sin and took away our sin. By his righteous life, we are counted righteous. We also see that in con- that we also see, and we're going to see the other. We're going to see the second half of each one of these uh, statements in just a moment. But we're looking at first of all the devastation to those in their target. They aim their destruction at those weaker than themselves. It says they. The wicked draw their sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. That is, those who are weaker and more vulnerable. Aim their bows and draw their their swords against those who are weaker and more vulnerable than themselves. Human history is a history of this. Humans destroying, exploiting those who are weaker than themselves, including those who are probably regarded as weak. Everyone is looking to exploit somebody. 
in the 19th and 20th and well into the 20th century in Western civilization, this was actually regarded as righteousness, as the weak and unfit should be weeded from the species anyway. Only those who could rise to the top are the ones who should survive. And so to assist those who were weak and vulnerable was to weaken the species. That was very common in the 19th and 20th centuries. And that was regarded as righteous even by those who said we believe the Bible. Also note how often we consider those, many times we consider those who are weaker than us to be dangerous. But here we see it as those who would use their power to destroy the weaker one who are the dangerous ones. And that's all of us. There's one astute person. He was not a believer. He was in a position of power in the country. But he made a certain observation. He said, if you can convince a group of people that you'll ensure that there will always be a group of people below them, you'll have their loyalty for, gener- loyalty for generations. Proverbs 29, verse 7, says, A righteous man cares about justice for the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. Now, it's in vogue in our circles to deny that oppression even exists. However, psalms like this fly in the face of that, because human history is a story of people who oppress one another. But here's the rub. Each and every human is both the oppressed and the oppressor at the same time. Every human being is both the oppressed and the oppressor at the same time. And so before we point the finger, let us remember that professing Christians, not just those of the apostate variety, have participated in some of the greatest moral failures of human history, including those we mentioned. Wickedness is also a curse upon those who are wicked. Wickedness is a curse upon those who are wicked. Because we see that it is turned back upon themselves. It is turned back upon themselves. Says, while they may plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at him, the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Coming, While they may plot and, and gnash their teeth and be giving the, giving the stereotypical evil mad scientist laugh who wants to take over the world while plotting. The Lord looks and he laughs, for he knows the day is coming in which wickedness shall be dealt with in finality and with finality. The wickedness of the wicked will be turned back upon themselves, for the Lord will have the last say and will have the final judgment. We also see that their own plots will turn against them. Their sword shall enter their own heart. That while they have plotted and sought and to destroy those weaker themselves and to slay those whose way is upright, that their plottings, their attacks, he says, turns back upon themselves. Their sword, their sword while they may thrust it at, uh, at the one who, to whom, against whom they are aiming, the Lord ensures that the end, that sword, goes right back to them. For the Lord returns that which is due. 
the wickedness of the wicked will be turned back upon them. Another way of saying this is the cry of another prophet in the Old Testament who said, be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. But again, as we've mentioned, if we use this as an opportunity to say, yeah, those wicked folks, yeah, that's them. And we immediately say, turn it and say, them. That's one of our favorite words sometimes, isn't it? Them. But this is actually pointing to us as well. Because we don't have a leg to stand on in and of ourselves. We need someone to shield us from this judgment. And that shield is this, Jesus Christ, the truly righteous one. The only one who is truly and unjustly persecuted. There's injustice that happens in the world where someone receives something that was not due to them, at least in terms of a particular instance. But here's the thing, he's probably, he, everyone is guilty of something. Jesus was guilty of nothing and was truly persecuted unjustly in God's design to bring atonement for our sins. And in that, God greatly blessed his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We know God's blessing, not according to the greatness of the things that we can see, but rather according to the weakness of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see the, the contrast in terms of God's view of the wicked and the righteous. Though the wicked appear, wickedness appears to be winning as it has throughout history. Well, oftentimes when we look back at the past or even our own childhoods, we might say, well, 30 years ago it wasn't so bad. But that's because we sometimes have rose-colored glasses and we fail to see things that were really there. I remember someone very recently saying, 30 years ago, this wasn't there, and this wasn't there, and this wasn't there. And I thought, you realize 30 years ago was 1993, right? Other things were present too. These things have always been a thing. And people, God's people, if we read church history, are always looking at their period in time and saying, this is the most evil time that has ever existed or will ever exist you read i read spurgeon and he speaks of all the horrendous evil and there's been never been a more evil time no reformers they say the same thing folks in the early 19 1900s they said the same thing <clears throat> i remember hearing a sermon by alistair Begg in the late 80s and 90s speaking of this is in one of the most evil times we've ever lived in it's all these things are always happening but the one thing that is always true is that there is a truly righteous one upon whom we can lean our lord jesus christ thus we have no reason to fret in verses 16 through 20 we now see the blessing of righteousness is greater than the wealth of wickedness in verses 16 and 17 opens the idea that better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The pittance that one who is righteous might have, according to conventional wisdom, 
has far greater than the abundance that the wicked might have. That the one who is dirt poor, who loves the Lord, and yes, someone can be dirt poor and love the Lord, has far more than the billionaires of the world who revel in godlessness. Not that all billionaires do that. That's just a contrast. That's just a contrast. <clears throat> is far greater than the abundance that the wicked might have. Often in this life, the righteous has little, while the wicked have much. The greatest movement of Christianity in the world right now is in India among a group of people known as the untouchables. It's one of the greatest movements of Christianity. The untouchables are in the Indian caste system, a group of people who, because of things done in there, this is according to Hinduism, okay, so I'm not endorsing this idea, <coughs> but who, because of something, things they did in their previous life or previous lives, are relegated to the lowest of the low and thus cannot be touched. For to touch them would be to doom yourself in your next life to a lower status than what you are now. <clears throat> so thus, to provide any sort of aid or whatnot to the untouchable is, of course, to doom yourself. It's a very awful system. But a great, one of the greatest movements of Christianity in the world is among the untouchables. Because the gospel is for them. They see that this is Christ. He has come for them. And he died on behalf of them. These untouchables. These great needy people. And these untouchables who come to faith in Christ have far more than the highest of the high caste of the Hindus. But our Lord was not, our, even our Lord was not regarded as anything special by the judgments of this world. Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. He had no stately form or majesty that we should be drawn to him. By all appearances, he was another guy. Other than his words and his deeds. Charles Spurgeon, he says, A man's happiness consists not in the heaps of gold which he has in store. Content finds finds abundance in little, while for a wicked heart the whole world is too little. Why is this true? Because the Lord upholds the righteous. As we, as we see in coming verses in this section. The Lord, <clears throat> the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance. That they shall last. Because the Lord upholds the righteous. And the wicked shall face judgment. As it says, the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Charles Spurgeon once again says, The arms which they lifted up against God shall be crushed even to the bone. The arms that they lifted up in uh, rebellion to God shall be broken even to the bone. Again, that is why the righteous has so much more than the wicked who seems, according to 
conventional wisdom has everything, has the power, has the wealth, because God's favor is upon the righteous. God's favor is upon the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, God's favor is upon us. In Him, God's favor is upon us. Even in what we would consider the moments like Job said, why? Why? God's favor is upon us. Because He blesses us not through the glorious things we see, but he blesses us through the lens of the cross. Verses 18 through 20, as we mentioned, expand upon why. We see that the Lord keeps the righteous in verses 18 and 19, which we just just mentioned. He preserves and keeps the righteous, for he knows them and preserves their heritage. And we see their inheritance is in his hand and kept by his promise. Think of Jeremiah, for he said, uh, for he said, for to Jeremiah, the Lord said, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. I knew you that according to his own knowledge of his people, his own knowledge of his plans for his people, he knows the way of the righteous. In verse 20, we see that curse that is upon the wicked. The wicked will perish The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. They smoke like smoke. They vanish away. We see that curse upon wickedness and upon the wicked. That, as we mentioned earlier, we look at beautiful fields and the flowers or the the blossoms. Another illustration. In the spring, we get the cherry blossoms. One of the most beautiful blossoms I've ever seen. Those pink blossoms on the tree. But... Boy, are they short-lived. Of course, they yield the wonderful fruit that we're tasting now, if you've had cherries this year. But they go away very quickly. And then, of course, in a few months, actually probably less than a few months, in a few weeks, they'll start lo- the trees will start losing their trees, and they'll look rather bare. But that is the judgment upon the wicked. For they shall not last eternally in God's, in, God, in God's sight. Rather, they shall suffer eternal judgment and eternal condemnation. They shall uh, suffer eternal punishment before God. <coughs> and so, while, the, while, the, while wickedness may seem to have all the power and all the wealth, it shall not be that way eternally. And in verses 21 and 22, we have a contrast between the righteous and the wicked with regards to behavior. First of all, the righteous is generous and gives. The wicked is bar- borrows and does not pay back. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. So the righteous is one who gives of what the Lord has provided for him and has given to him. He does not view that which has been given to him as his own, but rather as to be used for a blessing unto his neighbor or her neighbor. 
A.W. Tozer in one of his books, The Pursuit of God, the very first chapter was called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. That all the things that he had, the blessedness of knowing that not a single one of them were his. But they belonged to the Lord to be used for his purposes, the blessing of his neighbor. And it's not because God needs us to do good things. He doesn't need a single good work from us. Christ has accomplished that. But the one who needs our good work is our neighbor. Is our neighbor who needs our good works. But rather the wicked borrows and does not pay back. That is, he is stingy. He's stingy and and does not. uh, Being stingy, he even borrows and does not pay back. Consider this, that. Uh, There's a saying among those, and I can't imagine this kind of money, but there's a saying among bankers and among people who know finance that if you owe a bank $10,000, that's your problem. But if you owe the bank $120 million, that's the bank's problem. But that's the mentality of the one who borrows and doesn't give back and does not pay back. <clears throat> we also see that the blessed uh, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. That is those under God's blessing, the righteous, the, the eternal, the land is theirs again in the immediate context, the land of promise. Those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but Israel could never fulfill the requirement of do this and live. It testified of our of our the law says this you can't do this and live. But we need a grace in our Lord Jesus Christ and through whom all who trust in him from the beginning of the world until now and to the end of the world have their salvation. For he was promised there in the garden. But the wicked, on the other hand, are cut off and cut off from the life of God. And we see in verses 23 through 26 the endurance of the righteous. Verses 23 and 24, God preserves the righteous. He establishes the way of the righteous. That is specifically those who delight in him. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way or he who delights in his way. Those are different ways of translating that. But those who delight in him... God has established their way. And for us, that means being found in Christ Jesus. And we see that he keeps his righteous ones to himself. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. In Christ, his people are protected by the one who fell and died on our behalf. He keeps us and grows us and preserves us so we endure in him. Even when we find ourselves falling and how often we fall. He does not allow us to fall headlong into destruction. Rather, he trains us, disciplines us, and moves us more to himself. As we've learned in the book of Hebrews. And it's because of the work of the Lord, for the Lord upholds his hand. He has made a promise and he keeps that promise. And verses 25 and 26, we see, I have been young and young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. 
He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. We see in verses 25 and 26 <clears throat> that in his keeping of his of the righteous and his endurance of the righteous, we see that outworking in the in the in the one who is righteous on reflecting this. He sees a history of God's dealings with the upright in the life of Israel. The righteous has never been forsaken. We see a truism that their children have no, no need to beg. Now, a truism is like a proverbs are filled with truisms. Proverbs, and when we see the proverbs, they are not promises. For instance, the one that says, train up a child in the way he should go that he will not depart from it. We oftentimes treat that that as a promise. That if we do everything right, our child will turn out well. Be followers of the Lord. That is a truism that is generally true. But it is not universally something that always happens. Many parents have done everything they know to do, given the best with what they've had, to see their children turn in ways that they would not have them turn. Often blaming themselves, when in reality, they did the best with what they had. But we can see this from this standpoint, as we learned last week, with the, with the uh, looking at the prayer request from God, give us this day our daily bread. As Paul said in the book of First Timothy, with food and clothing, this we will be content. For godliness with contentment is of great gain. That is people, God takes care of his people, those who seek him first. And the believer is secure in Christ if we are his. All those who are in the righteous one, we are never lacking for the, for, the, for the bread, which if we eat, we will never hunger again. And that drink, that is, if we drink, we will never thirst again. For Christ is that food and Christ is that drink. He is the truly righteous one. And in his righteousness, we have the favor of God. And we can trust that though we may trip and fall, we are not doomed, for we are upheld by the hand of God because we are in the beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so thus, in contrasting the wicked and the righteous, we have all the more reason to be still before the Lord. As we are in the one who is truly make, the one who has secured the eternal inheritance for us, we ourselves give ourselves to meekness and humility, putting our head down and being about the Lord's business in quietness and godliness. As we're told in 1 Timothy, As we are in the one who did not hold anything back, but gave himself for us. We live in generosity of our goods and time for the good of others. We exemplify, and again, these are aspirations. I pray that we all do this. That we are, that that as we are poor and needy, that we we see a place for the weak and vulnerable. And we must resist the temptation to regard such as unfit or undesirable. As we are in the one who did not hold anything back, we give of ourselves to see people enter into his blessed inheritance, even if they cause us difficulty and harm. For in righteousness we live not for ourselves, but the good of our neighbor and our love for God. And though it appears that evil and wickedness have won, be it all sorts of perversions of how God created us, or powerful people running over the powerless and evil godless people, 
many of whom may even say things that tickle our own ears. And when I say us, I'm not speaking of them out there. I'm speaking to us in this room. Gathering more power, more influence, more money, even getting inroads into God's people. Our God shall break their arms. And so we have, and God shall do right and just. Because we, and we must recognize we are in the one who is the truly righteous one. So in closing, people of God, let us rest in God and Christ who will do right by his justice and righteousness. And let us trust him who keeps us and feeds us and fills us. And thus, fret not. Fret not. Let us pray. Father, blessed be your name who has been faithful throughout all generations. Would you continue to lead us in your way of life? Would you continue to grow us in Christ Jesus and to cleave to him and hold on to him? And when we find ourselves fretting, may we continually turn to Christ Jesus, who is our sufficiency, in whose name we pray. Amen.